Turn, if you would, to chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We won't be going over the chapter. We won't even be going over an entire verse. Part of a verse is all I'd like us to look at. Just so we remember, though, Acts chapter 17, as we've studied, is a chapter that deals with the Apostle Paul, how he preached at Thessalonica, and was attacked, as he was oftentimes, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ by the unbelieving Jews. He had to leave. I found it interesting that the Apostle Paul was willing to leave town uh, when things got a little hot, not because of the heat, but because of the distraction it was to the effect of the gospel, because the attacks were personally on him. He left but sent trusted brethren back to finish up the work there and to keep at it while he went on. And he goes on to the city of Athens. Athens was at that time the center of worldly learning. All the great Greek philosophers had lived in Athens, were in Athens. It was considered one of the great cities of learning. And the Apostle Paul was totally appalled by the conditions there, by the idolatry, by the paganism, by the folly of these supposedly wise men. He went into the marketplace and disputed with those, discussed matters with those who would listen, so much so that it came to the attention of the philosophical board of Athens. And they brought him up to Mars Hill and wanted to know about these strange things he was talking about. In there you have a beautiful, beautiful example of the presentation of the gospel in which he takes from their own learning, because God has left his witness in all men's hearts, he took their own learning and turned it on on them to show what fools they are in their own eyes for not worshiping the God of heaven. Then goes on to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, which was a great offense to them. In the middle of that, though, there's a phrase I'd like us to look at. That's the context of the passage. There's a phrase in here I'd like us to look at, as I indicated earlier. I've looked at this for, well, at least a year and a half now. And I'd like us to take this as an example of what it is to meditate on God's Word. I know you've heard that talked about. I'd like to show you an example of what you can get out of just taking a phrase out of Scripture and thinking about it, meditating on it, and trying to apply it to your life. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Here Paul tells the Athenians, for in him, that's God, we live and move and have our being. In him, we live, we move, and we have our being. Let's think about that for a second. I appreciate what Brother Mark said in his prayer to encourage me to be bold, but Really, just seeing how things fell out this morning hearing Brother Jim preached, I don't need any encouragement more than that because what Brother Jim said, I was just afraid Brother Jim was going to use up most of my verses this morning. The first point I want I think about when I look at this passage is the fact that God is everywhere. Amen. God is everywhere. God has perfect knowledge of us and His actions. Amen. In Him, we live and move and have our being. You know, God knows all things, and there's no way you can hide anything from Him. Amen. Over in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24, He tells us, Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Saith the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth? Saith the Lord. 
Can you hide from a being who is so great, so immense, that He is everywhere? I mean, it says He fills heaven and earth, doesn't He? Amen. How about over in Psalm 139? Turn there. This is a passage Brother Jim referred to but didn't turn us to. Thank you. Let's look at it now. Psalm 139, starting at verse 7. Talking about the fact that God knows everything. He's everywhere. You can't escape Him. 139 verse 7. Whither shall I go from Thy Spirit? Or whither shall I flee from Thy presence? If I'm trying to run away from God, where can I go? If I ascend into heaven, Thou art there. Well, of course, He's in heaven, right? That's His throne. If I make my bed in hell, behold, Thou art there. Do you think the ungodly are going to escape from God just because they're cast into hell? Oh, no. They're going to know Him very well in hell. It's just that they're going to be separated from any joy or pleasure that God has in His presence. They're going to see the full wrath of God in hell. So can you go into heaven and escape God? No. Can you go down to hell and escape God? No. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there... Shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Go to the farthest island of the ocean. Go to the Antarctic. Go to the Arctic. I don't care where. God is there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. You know, night vision goggles? God's got that beat long ago. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as a day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. There's no place you can go and escape from God. Amen. God's everywhere. And over in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, Solomon tells us that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Amen. So my first thoughts about for in Him we live and move and have our being is that God's everywhere. He knows everything. He knows, has perfect knowledge of all my actions, of all the actions of all men. More than that, though. I mean, that would be intimidating enough. But let's go the next step. God's got perfect knowledge of all of man's thoughts. It's not just that he's everywhere seeing what's going on, because you know there's times you can see something unfold before you and you not really know what's happening, right? You don't know what's the motivating factor behind the people involved. Well, God, though, He doesn't have that problem. Just as it says over here in Psalm 139 that, you know, the darkness is light to Him. Well, so are our thoughts. That's right. Think about what He says, what Jesus said many times in the Gospels. I've just got two examples in Matthew 9, 4 and Matthew 12, 25. One time, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? He had just done a miracle... And they were thinking, what's he doing? This is a Sabbath day. He's working. You're not supposed to do that. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. They didn't have to tell him. He said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts about this miracle that's been done? Right. Or in Matthew 12, 25, where he had just cast out devils. And they say, they're whispering. They're thinking to themselves, oh, he's doing this by the power of the devil. He's doing this by Beelzebub. Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. 
He knew their thoughts. Amen. And just you say, well, well, you know, I mean, he could just read, knowing the circumstances, what was on him. Let me remind you of what Hebrews chapter 4 tells us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. It's a good passage. It's a passage, by the way, if you want a, some you know, little litmus test about whether somebody understands the Scripture or not, remember Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Most people, when I went to Bob Jones and most places I've been in my past, they want to make this out to be the Bible or the preached Word of God. But this is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open, Unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And in case you couldn't catch on that this is a person, the very next verse tells you, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, which is passed into heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Verses 12 and 13 speak about the word that was in the beginning with God, and that was God, Jesus Christ himself. But what does it say there? What does it say about him? He's sharp. He's quick. That means he's alive. He's powerful. He's the almighty God. Can you get more powerful than that? Sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Newell, what's the dividing between soul and spirit? I don't know. But I know Jesus Christ can make that division. Amen. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Brethren, He knows your thoughts. He knows what you intend by those thoughts. All things are open unto His eyes. They're naked. They're naked before Him. There's nothing hidden about them. He knows them intimately, perfectly. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Not only that, brethren, but God... I mean, that'd be one thing, right? If God was everywhere viewing what's going on, that laser beam that goes right into our very thoughts and knows what we're thinking, what's going on in our minds. But He is personally, intimately involved in mankind. You know, there was a great little heresy that came out back in the 1700s. You know, we went through the Dark Ages... They're like some people like to call them the Middle Ages, but the right people call them the Dark Ages when Roman Catholic power ruled. But then, when it started to stumble and fall out, then we had something called the Enlightenment. You might call those the Darker Ages. That's when old paganism came back in humanism, in science. And to start it out, they, didn't, they couldn't right away be outright atheists and say there is no God. So what did they do? They tried to pass off, to palm off on people this idea that, well, there was a God, and He did make everything. He's like a great watchmaker. He designed this beautiful machinery we call the universe. He wound up that clock and then let it run. But He's sitting back and watching. I mean, you've heard the song, right? God is watching at a distance. And other things like that. That's what's called deism. 
Well, let me tell you something. The Bible doesn't know anything about that. Amen. That's a lie from hell. Amen. Because what, did, what advice did David give to his son Solomon over in 1 Chronicles chapter 28? Here David's on his deathbed, ready to leave this world, giving his final advice to his 40-year-old son who's about to become king of Israel. And in verse 9 of 1 Chronicles 28, he tells, he says, And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. Isn't that great advice? Amen. You talk about fathers being Amen. godly men. Hey, fathers, let's teach this to our children. Amen. Let's teach this to our children. Know God. Know the God of your father. Serve him with a willing with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. We've already covered that point. Follow on. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. If you go after God, if you seek after the God of your fathers, you'll find him. And He'll bless you, the implication here. And He'll bless you just like He's blessed me, the sweet psalmist of Israel. But if thou forsake Him, He will cast thee off forever. That's not a God looking at a distance, is it? No. That's a God that's right here and now with us. Amen. You seek Him, He'll bless you. Amen. He'll be found of you. You'll have your heart's desires. You forsake Him, He won't just forsake you. He will cast you away. Amen. He'll throw you out. That's the God we have to deal with. We have a God that is so wise, that is so powerful, that's so all-controlling of things, that there was a king one time that had a vision. He had a dream from God. Okay? But he woke up the next day, and he couldn't remember it. He called in all of his counselors and said, I had a dream last night. It shook me to my core. I want you to tell me what it was and give me the interpretation. And they looked at him and said, Oh, king, oh, king, we, we, we will do everything you say. We will interpret your vision, but get real. Oh, we can't tell you what you dreamed. No man can do that. This was King Nebuchadnezzar. This is accounts in Daniel chapter 2. And he comes back to him and says, Well, look here. You guys claim that you have the ear of the gods, that you can interpret what they have to say. Then you can tell me what my dream was and what the interpretation is thereof. And if you can't, I'm going to slay your households and make all your houses like dung heaps. <clears throat> and the word was going out for that to be done when Daniel, who was one of the trained men in the kingdom came forward and said, send back king word that he doesn't need to worry about it. And he told him over in Daniel chapter 2, verses 29 through 30, As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets make, maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me... This secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have, more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, 
and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Brethren, it's one thing for God to know the thoughts of my heart. It's another thing for God to give me some thoughts and then remind me of them through somebody else. Is that awesome? Amen. How often do we think, oh, my little thought, I'm hiding my thoughts. I've got them all to myself. Nobody else can know what these little thoughts are. Well, God knows what they are, and if He wants to, He can reveal them to somebody else who can come back to you with them. In this case, it was beneficial. What would it be like, though, if God revealed some of our thoughts to other people that aren't so beneficial? In Him, we live and move and have our being. Do you think about things like this as you're riding down the road? Do you take the verses of Scripture that God give, that, that God has given us and that our pastor in love and charity is encouraging us to memorize? Do you pull these things out and think about them? I mean, this is only 11 words. For in Him we live and move and have our being. God has control of our thoughts and our actions. It's not just that he sees everything around us and what's going on. It's not just that he sees what's in our thoughts. It's not just that he interacts in our world with us. God can control those very thoughts we have and the actions that flow from them. Proverbs chapter 16, turn there because there's a couple of passages, a couple of verses there related to this we can see. And there's some of these verses you need to see, brethren. You've seen them before. But you need to be reminded of them. Why do I say that? Because I used to read over some of these passages years ago. And, oh yeah, I'd read right over it and go by. And then one day I'd read over and say, wow. It says, what? You know, God can give you a little bit of wisdom down the road on something. And one day a verse that was just so many words is all of a sudden like, wow, where did that come from? How have I missed that for the last 20 years? Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 1 to start with. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from his wise heart. Right? The preparation of the heart of man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Amen. Brethren, we could stop right there and just meditate on that all night long. Yes. My thoughts and what I do, God controls those things. Now we know any of my sinful thoughts, God's not controlling that as far as being the source of that, but how it actually plays out or whether it gets to play out at all, God's in charge of. Oh, what a blessed thing that God does know and control my thoughts. How many times have I maybe had some bad thoughts that God hasn't allowed me to play out in life? Amen. How many times have I maybe had a, had a good thought that has played out in life that I might not have done? under different circumstances. Have you ever really, I'm serious now, have you ever done something and look back on that later and say, why did I do that? I mean, yeah, that was a good thing, but I really didn't have that in mind at all. It's God. Yep. Look at verse 9. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Brethren, do you, do you know why that Brother Jim and myself and our dear pastor, have no care, concern whatsoever about conspiracies and things like that. Because we've studied them all. I, mean, I can't say we've studied all of them, but we've studied that subject. There's part of my life where I just spent a lot of time concentrating on some of these things. You know, the great white brotherhood. 
You know, the Masonic Lodge and all these things. Do you know why I could care less about those things now? Amen. It's because God's given me a little bit of understanding from a verse like that. Those guys, any of us, those guys, you, me, all of us together can sit in our little dark hole somewhere and scheme up all sorts of things. We're only going to do what God wants done and what God allows to be done. Nothing more, nothing less. You know, brethren, even things that we would call random events, random events God controls. When you sit there and you want to play a game, right, and you want to enter, you want random randomness to enter it in, so it's just like it happened in real life, right? You couldn't predict what happened. What do you do? You take some little cubes, right, with little dots on it, and you roll them out, right? Dice. Okay? In the Old Testament, that was the lot. Look at verse 33 of chapter 16. The lot is cast into the lap. But the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Amen. Oh, yeah, you can rattle those dice and throw them out there, but God's going to determine how they actually fall That's right, man. and what the results of those dice falling are. Over in Proverbs 21, 31. Great verse for a military historian like myself. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. You can do everything wise and prudent. And I'm not, don't get me wrong here, I'm not saying we should just go out helter-skelter living life any way we want to. God's given us wise principles in His book to live by. But you can make every wise precaution you want to. And you're not going to stop a tornado coming through your building. Or you can be as poor as a church mouse, as the old saying goes, and God can take care of you Amen. very well. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. God is in charge. God disposes how events turn about. Summary of my first set of thoughts, meditations on this verse. Number one, God's everywhere. God's everywhere. He sees all that we do. He knows all that we think. He is personally involved with our lives. Rewarding, punishing, guiding. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Well, let's move on to another set of, of thoughts. If we look at this from another standpoint. For in Him, we live and move and have our being. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's think about creation. Let's look at some of the verses we know, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1.1. God set it all in place, brethren. I like what our, what our brother Jonathan said. I, don't know, I think it was last week or maybe the week before. Maybe he said it a couple times, but I like it. He talks about the fact that we're twice, we're twice gods, aren't we? We're first of all gods by creation. I mean, after all, if I go out and I buy some lumber, okay... I buy some lumber, and I buy some nails and some paint. I take it to my house. I cut that lumber up. I nail it in place. I build myself a nice shed on my property. That's mine, right? It's not my neighbor's. It's not somebody else's. It's mine. I put forth the effort. I bought the materials, put forth the effort to make that shape of that building, paint it up, and it's mine. Well, that's you and me. That's you and me and everything in this creation, in this world. God made us. 
So by that point alone, we ought to serve him, right? Amen. We're his property. He made us. Amen. He wrote the rules for how everything goes in this universe. But let's get more personal than that. I don't like... I love the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. I was raised reading it and being taught its stories and the precepts there, so I, I love it. But I love the New Testament more because I have a name for God that I can identify with even better, and that's Jesus. And John 1, 3, what does that tell us? All things were made by him. And without him, what? Was not anything made that was made. That's Jesus Christ personally. Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, made everything. He made me. That's why Jonathan says we're twice his, right? He made us and he bought us with his blood. But think about that. Everything that's around us. What was it? Shakespeare said one time, all the world is a stage and we but players on it. He was right. On that phrase, he was right and he was wise. This is a stage to display God's glory. This world, this universe. We are actors that have been given parts by him to play. You and I have blessed parts to play, don't we? Because we're going to be the ones of the reflectors throughout all eternity of God's goodness, God's mercy, and God's kindness. But all things were made by Him. Paul goes on in First Colossians, excuse me, Colossians one sixteen. For by Him, Jesus Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And there he's talking about all sorts of authority structures, including angelic powers that we don't have the foggiest notion about. All things were created by him and for him. For in him we live and move and have our being. Jesus Christ made everything for his own glory, brethren, and that includes us. But let's move on. The very next verse of Colossians takes us to my next point. That God, Jesus Christ, continually maintains it all. It's not just that deistic crap about God making everything and letting it go. No, it would fall apart if he didn't sustain it minute by minute, second by second. Colossians 1.17 And he is before all things, and by him all things consist you know what we could put a whole lot of people out of work so they'd have to do something legitimate for a change if they would realize that all the astronomers what's astronomy today basically most astronomy today is going out there sending satellites out getting on telescopes to try to see the red shift to see how fast things are moving out so we can see how old this universe is so we can come up with our theories about how the universe came about well you know what we've already handled that we've already put all those guys out of business right 90% of what NASA does is immoral ungodly and we could put it out of business with Genesis 1-1 right in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth answers that question what else you guys want to talk about? You want to pump some gas? You want to do something legit for a change? Okay, what about the physicists? What about the physicists who want to take millions of dollars to build mile-long accelerators to smash little electrons and smaller particles and other things to find out the smallest particles of how is everything put together? 
What is the smallest particle that makes up everything in the universe? I can tell you what it is. I can tell you his name, Jesus Christ. By him, all things consist. Just put out half the particle physicists in the world. Right there. Amen. Do you ever think about that, brethren, from that standpoint? As you meditate on God's word, what's the practical implication of that? Well, there's certain areas of study I don't need to worry about. There's certain things if people come up and publish, I don't care what their theories are. They're crazy. Amen. No, they're not crazy. They're ungodly. Amen. Because they want to focus on the material universe and not on the maker of that universe. Mm-hmm. So therefore, why do I need to worry? Why do I need to worry about what that comes out of Caltech on basic physics? It's a lie. It's a deluded lie from a sick bunch of people who are trying to dodge their responsibility to a God who made them. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, continuing on this point that Jesus Christ personally sustains life. Our life. Your life, my life. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Talking about Jesus. Who being the brightness of His, meaning God the Father's glory, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at that. The God... The man that redeemed us and saved us. He's holding us together right now. I mean, let's think about it. I mean, any of you who have just a little bit of physics knowledge, right? What's the, you know, centripetal force, right? That's where everything wants to, you know, push apart, right? What holds it together? How do these things keep from flying apart? Why do the atoms hold together and not just fly apart? The Word. The Word. Jesus Christ is holding them together. Notice, I haven't said yet Jesus Christ set up the laws of that. I said Jesus Christ holds it together. In my studies and my thoughts about this over time, too often, brethren, one of the things of deism, do you know what it came up with? The mechanistic view of the universe. That is that everything's a big machine. We can sit here and figure out this machine, right? Figure out the laws on how it operates, right? Figure out, you know, this little piece here and that little piece there. And with that, we can do it. Do you know what witchcraft is all about, brethren? Witchcraft is nothing more than saying there's forces and there are powers out there in the universe that I can learn to control. How much difference is there between this so-called scientist of today and a witch? The scientist just says that, oh, well, there are forces out in the universe, right? Call electronic forces or, you know, mechanical forces, and I can learn the rules and the regulations to make them together. Does he give glory to God? Nope. No. Does some pagan witch give glory to God? She may give glory to some demon being, but she doesn't give glory to God. What's the difference? One does it with mystical mumbo-jumbo. Another does it with scientific mumbo-jumbo. What's the difference? What's the difference? They both deny the God of the universe who made them and who's going to call them into account for their lives one day. Brethren, do you understand the very air you breathe is in God's hand? Job. Job, in Job chapter 12 and verse 10, talking about God, says, In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? My very breath, the very air I breathe, comes from God. 
And I love, I mean, I, at first I used to not think that much about it, but the more I've thought about that illustration that Brother Jonathan uses, that's powerful. We get so pumped up and proud of our of mankind and his accomplishments. How much space is contained in here? Now you cover this up and this up simultaneously for about a minute and a half, and what do you have? Yeah. If you did that on me, you'd have a dead New Eastland. Right? And over in the Old Testament, what's one of the ways they would t- kill a king? They would take a cloth, they dip it in water, and spread it over his face. Yep. The water is impermeable to air. You just put it over his face and hold him down for just a few moments. And that mighty king is food for the worms. He's gone. All his achievements, all his accomplishments are dust. That's us, brethren. Our breath is in God's hands. Right. He controls it. Psalm 66, verses 8 through 9. Bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our feet to be moved. In God we live and move and have our being. I like to say God's the great conditioner of all life. And what's the condition for life, God? Amen. Period. Exclamation mark. But brethren, I've been talking about carnal life up to this point. Let's move on to what's really important. What about spiritual life? Amen. Jesus Christ is the source of our life, isn't he? Yes. Amen. Of what really counts. Look over at John. One, notice we've already talked about that earlier, that what was that verse? Something about all things being made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. Goes on in that same chapter, the very next verse, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4 to say, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. What is the most, even by... Even by carnal, secular standards, what is recognized as one of the most momentous events of this universe is Jesus Christ coming into the world. The life of Jesus. Even men who hate Him have to acknowledge that He is one of the most pivotal figures in human history. Never had a million dollars. He did have royal birth, but He didn't have any connections, at least on earth. And yet, look what he did. And that's just to the carnal eye. How about John chapter 5? John chapter 5. Look at verse 25. There's a couple of verses here we'll look at, but first look at verse 25, where he tells us, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Jesus Christ gives life, but more than that, brethren, He gives personally life to His children. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom He will. And notice by the context, we're not talking about all the dead. We're talking about a different quickening. We're talking about a quickening to eternal life and whom He will. That's you and me and all the rest of God's saints. Verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on me, him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. 
Jesus Christ speaks personally to each and every one of us and to all of his children and gives them life. And not just carnal life. Though, if you live by his principles in this world, you'll have a carnal life that's so much better than anybody else who's ever walked on this planet, right? But he gives us eternal life. In him, we live and move and have our being. Let's look at a few more verses on that. John chapter 14 and verse 19. John chapter 14 and verse 19. Here Jesus Christ has already told them He's going away. He's had His supper with them. He's explained that He's got to go someplace. They don't know, realize what it is yet, but they realize He's going from them. He's comforting them here. And He tells them, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. Amen. Brethren, do you realize because Jesus Christ is alive right now? He's not a corpse. His bones already turned to dust in some hole over in Judea. He's alive, sitting at the right hand of His Father right now. And because He's alive right now, you and I are living. Because He's alive right now, you and I have a prospect of a better life beyond this one. But a life even in this world. Because I live, ye shall live also. Look over at chapter 10, verse 28. Another personal expression here. At least I take it personally. He's talking about His sheep. John chapter 10, verse 28. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Amen. Brethren, are you one of the sheep of Jesus Christ? Amen. Then you're never going to die. Amen. In this sense of losing your spiritual life. You'll always live. You'll always live to Jesus Christ. Nobody can take you from Him. In Him we live and move and have our being. Jesus Christ. Oh, Oh, this is so beautiful. Very next chapter, chapter 11. What do we have? Lazarus. Lazarus who's dead. Lazarus who Jesus loved. The brother of Mary whom he loved and Martha whom he loved. The scriptures tell us that. He specifically delays his going there. So he dies. To make a point to everyone. And he's coming, he comes there, and Martha comes out, grief-stricken to him. Lord, if you'd only come, he'd still be alive. And Jesus tries to console her. And we come down to verse 25. Actually, right before verse 25. Here, Jesus is, as I just said, Martha's saying, Lord, if you'd just come, he'd, he'd be alive. Jesus saith unto her, verse 23, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this, Martha? But notice it didn't say Martha there. I think that's good. Do you believe that? She didn't fully believe it. She came right back and said, Oh Lord, I believe you're the Christ. And then Jesus had to show her, Yeah, I am the Christ. Because he went forth and he said, Lazarus, come forth! 
And he that was dead came forth. Amen. Brethren, do we believe that? Yes. See, I said I've got to make application of this, right? Do I believe that? How do I live my life? Do I live my life like it's Newell Eastland's life to live, right? I can do what I want to. What's the saying? You know, I'm, I'm white, 21 and free or something like that, you know? No. I was created by Jesus Christ. And I was bought by Jesus Christ. I'm not my own. I don't have my life to live. I have his life to live. I have the life he wants me to live. Because in him, I live and move and have my being. How personal do we make that, brethren? It's not just a great philosophical concept that God sustains all life. He sustains my life. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he just take my component atoms back to the dust and make something else out of it? Well, he's got a purpose for me. What is that purpose? He's told me it's to glorify him. Amen. Am I fulfilling that purpose? I mean, as I meditate on God's words, I've got to think that way. Am I fulfilling God's purpose for my life? His high priestly prayer over in John chapter 17. As he's literally getting ready to go to the cross. When he lifts up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, I, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son may also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh. That he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. See, in him we live, we move, we have our being. Do we know that, though, brethren? Do you realize that? Eternal life is not so I can walk on streets of gold. Eternal life is not so I can see loved ones who've gone on before me. Eternal life is to see Him. Amen. Jesus Christ. To see those hands and realize they were pierced for me. To look at that side and know that it was my sins that forced Him to go on that cross. Amen. The whelps on His back. And, and to think that those were minor. Those were minor. To know that He took the wrath of God Almighty on Him for me. He's my life, brethren. Am I living that way? Do I keep those things in front of me? Then shall He also appear with Him in glory. But again, what's glory? It's going to be to see Him. It's to be with Him. Now because He's a king, I mean, He came as a lowly carpenter's son into this world. Next time we see him, it's going to be as a reigning monarch, right? As a conquering hero. Well, hey, because he deserves a great palace to live in, well, I guess that's where we'll reside, right? But it's not the fact that we're going to be in heaven that's so far above us that John could only describe a vision of it. Have you thought about that before, brethren? I feel so sorry. This is a little rabbit, but I feel so sorry for people that are so tied up with literal interpretations of the book of Revelation. Amen. Because John tells you from the beginning it's a vision. It's something that's so great and wonderful. The Apostle Paul himself couldn't tell us about it, right? John was given a little bit more to tell, but what did he have to tell? He had to sit down and say, well, let me tell you a story. 
Let me give you something you can understand to maybe halfway explain it, but understand you won't understand it all the way. Amen. I mean, when you see those, when you see that streets of gold, I mean, that's, they're not literal streets of gold. Whatever it is, it's glorious though. The best we can come up with is streets of gold. And best we can come up with is the most precious stones possible being what the thing's made of. But again, that's not a literal building. It's us in His presence. Purified, perfect, sinless to be with Him forever and to glorify Him. Wow. Amen. Wow. First John, First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5. I'm just about done with this last point and then a small little point of further steps to help maintain this and we'll be done. 1 John chapter 5 verse 11 And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life and this life is in His Son. In Him we live, move, and have our being. He that hath the Son hath life. Do you have Jesus Christ? You've got life. You don't need anything else. You don't need Jesus Christ and. You don't need Jesus Christ plus something else. It's not the new improved version next month. You've got Jesus Christ. You've got everything. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son hath not life. If you don't have Jesus, if He's not your portion, if that's not where your treasure is, you don't have anything. You don't have anything. You're living on borrowed air, on borrowed time. That's right. And finally, back to, for, to John chapter 5, finally for this one point, Jesus Christ is our life giver, but He is also our judge. John chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. For as the Father hath life in Himself, so hath He given to the Son to have life in Himself, and hath given Him authority to execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. Oh, brethren, as I meditate on the fact that I live in Him, I have to meditate on the fact that while He's got life, He's also going to call me to account for my life. He's going to call me one day, and that day, brethren, is approaching minute by minute. He's going to call me to account for myself. What have I done with that life He gave me in this world? What have I done with all the blessings He's given me? What did I do with it? He is the judge. And He's coming to judge. Summary for this second section. Jesus created the world and all things in it. Physical, spiritual, visible, invisible. Jesus maintains and upholds all life by His personal power. Jesus is the source of our spiritual life, which He personally gave to each and every one of us. And Jesus will come back one day as a judge. Those are some things I think about as I meditate on this. Well, finally, what should that mean to me? For in Him we live and move and have our being. We've talked about the fact that He's given us life. Well, what kind of life do we want to live? 
You know, what kind of life do you want to live with what's been given you? And if you think about it, do you want to be like somebody on a, in an oxygen tent ready to expire from this world? Or do you want to be somebody that's, you know, strong and vigorous and health, able to do whatever needs to be done? I'm not talking about physical life. Now I'm talking about our spiritual life. That most important thing. God's given us life. What do you do to maintain life? What steps do you go through to maintain your life? Well, I've got two. You eat and you exercise, right? Without both, you're not going to live very long. Or not going to be very pleasant, have a very pleasant life. You can have all the food in the world. If you don't exercise, what's going to happen? Your body's going to degenerate. It's not going to be very pleasant. You can have all the exercise in the world. If you don't have food, what's going to happen? You're going to starve and die pretty quickly. Spiritual food. What is our spiritual food? Jesus Christ tells us this over in John chapter 6, verse 51. Can you guess what it might be? John 6, 51. I, Jesus says, am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread... He shall live forever, and the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. You've got to sustain yourself on Jesus Christ, brethren. Look at verse 57. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. And you say some people in the context of this passage heard those words and they were offended. You mean I've got to be a cannibal? I've got to gnaw on your body to live? No, we know better than that. He's speaking poetically here, but they're true words. Do you feed on Jesus Christ? Do you live off of Him? Do you look to Him for your sustenance each day of your spirit? I mean, He gave us His Word, right? How much time do you spend in His Word to know Him? Notice what I said. Time in His Word to know Him. How much time do you do that? How much thinking and meditating do you do on that Word? I'll be honest. This is stuff that came real quickly to me. It didn't take long for me to put this down. I'm talking about it came quickly to me when I got the assignment a couple of weeks ago. I have spent a long time thinking about this and aspects of this. But how much time do we take to roll around those words in our mind, to think about them, to cross-reference them with something else so we can understand what He means by these things, what the impact should be in our life? How often do you go to Him in your need? When you get in trouble, who's the first person you want to go to? Is it a rich uncle? Your parents? You know? A powerful friend? Or is it Jesus Christ? I mean, the first thing you should think about when you've got a problem, the first thing I should think about when I've got a problem is going to the Lord in prayer. Asking Him for it. Asking Him for guidance. I've told you before, I have a fairly technical job, don't I? Yeah. A network administrator. But you know what? You don't know the number of times I'm walking down the hallway with all the technical resources at my fingertips, saying, Good Lord, please help me. Amen. Please help me. Tell me what's the solution to this problem. 
Because you know, all those great technical resources, what are they? Men. That's right. Lord, help me. Even the guys who wrote the things don't know what they're doing sometimes. Lord, help me. And I'm not being facetious. That rich uncle may just up and die the day you need him for a loan and all his assets are frozen. You may have just offended your best friend a day before and don't realize it so that he won't answer your phone call. But you know what? What, did, what was that advice that David gave Solomon? Something about that if you seek him, you'll find him. Yep. Talking about the Lord himself. Amen. If you seek the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find him. He is our life. In Him, we live and move and have our being. He sustains us. He created us. He provides the circumstances all around us for whatever we need. One other, just to be easy on you. In case these other words were too much, you say, Newell, I, I, I kind of believe that, but can you give me a verse that really kind of shows that? John chapter 8, verse 51. In the same context that we we're talking about, about eating Christ's flesh and all that. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Keep Christ's sayings. Keep his teachings. Study his book to learn about him and what you find, do. And you're in great shape. You'll never see death. Simple. Exercise. Exercise. You get the food. But you've got to use it. You've got to take the food, digest it, and then use the body to make sure it's of maximum effectiveness. You should be engaging in activities that build up your spirit. Right. Now, brethren, I, I really am, I'm really am quite touched by all the affection that has been shown to me because of the problems I've had, my physical problems. And one of the problems I've had is not enough exercise. And I have been going about and doing much more exercise, okay? So that I'm feeling much better physically. So I think it's a good object lesson, okay? You can push it too much to where, oh, could I ever be a Lance Armstrong? I doubt it. But would I even want to be one, to spend all my time doing that? No. Okay? But the point being... Appropriate amount of exercise is necessary to sustain our physical life and our well-being. And the more general exercise I have been doing recently, the better I have been doing. Now, Paul tells us over in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, a little bit about exercise. And he tells us that we're to refuse profane and old wives' fables... And exercise thyself rather unto godliness. And he goes on to point out, For bodily exercise profiteth little. See, Paul would look at me and say, Well, no, that's good. A little bit of exercise is fine, it'll profit you a little. But you know that body's eventually going to decay and go away. But the time you spend in godliness is profitable unto all things, having the promise of life that now is, and that which is to come. Amen. Now listen to that. Godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of the life that is to come. Amen. Too often I think we say, oh, that's just going to fit me down the road somewhere on the other side in heaven. 
Brethren, it'll benefit you right now. Amen. And you know why I say that? And I might say a little, sound like I'm a little touchy on that. It's because I think sometimes we've been lazy bums spiritually. Amen. <coughs> we'll look at it and say, oh, down the road, my salvation is assured of me. So therefore, I don't need to worry about it right now. We become spiritual deists. God's wound me up in election. And he's going he's to standing back watching me run. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he's given us everything and he expects us to use it. Amen. And where he's involved and where I'm involved, I'll tell you. That's back to one of those things that only Jesus Christ can discern. I'll let him discern it. I know what my duty is. It's what I see in God's word to do. And oftentimes, brethren, we find ourselves spiritually anemic, with spiritual bad backs, bad knees, and everything else, Amen. because we've been lazy. Amen. We've not been exercising ourselves into godliness. Right. Acts chapter 24, verse 16. This is what Paul describes as his, the way he wanted to be known among all men. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. How much less offense do you have in your life than you ought to have? How offenseless are you in this world? Or how many times do we have a lot of offenses that can be counted against us? Oh, but by my nature, I'm a hothead. Well, God says temperance is something you're supposed to be putting on as the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. Part of the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, but I'm just naturally given to melancholy and to, to depression. God says you're to be joyful if you've got His Spirit in you. Amen. Brethren, there are no excuses. Amen. There are no excuses. God's given us everything we need. Amen. What are we doing with it? If we spiritually get a bad back, it isn't because God gave us a bad back spiritually. It's because we aren't exercising. Amen. Or maybe we went down a bank we shouldn't have and hurt our back. Right. Brethren, do you know what I'm afraid of? I'm very much afraid of Hebrews 5. Hebrews chapter 5. You know, the book of Hebrews we love, right? I don't know about you, but when Brother Jonathan went over this years ago, I mean, it was just glorious the way God had opened his eyes to see how this book should be interpreted properly. And there's so many glorious things in it. And I can just, oh, I mean, as I read through it, you know, you read through the first four chapters and you come to chapter five, I mean, Paul's on a roll. He's just going on showing one thing after another, how the angels, oh, Jesus Christ is better than the angels. Moses and the covenant, no, oh, Jesus Christ is better than that. And he comes up to chapter five and he's talking about Jesus Christ as a high priest and he uses Melchizedek, that mysterious figure in the Old Testament, and how much better Jesus Christ is than that. And he comes on down to, oh, what is it, verse 11. Where he's talking about called to be a high priest, verse 10, after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. Brethren, this was a people who Paul wanted to show more, but he couldn't. He couldn't. Why? For when for the time ye ought to be teachers... He have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracle of God. Right. And are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. 
For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth unto them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. How many of us are still babes needing pablum when we ought to already be the T-bone steak? I'm not talking about the difference in gifts and abilities. I'm talking about what Paul's talking about here. Things we ought to already know and ought to already be in effect in our lives, that's not. In Him, we live and we move and we have our being. Well, brethren, what kind of life do we have? What kind of movements are we having? What kind of being are we exhibiting? May God help us. Amen. May God help us because we've been given so much. Yes. And to whom much is given, much is required. May we not be like this, but may we be glorious examples. May we be like what the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to be over in Ephesians. Over in Ephesians chapter 3, you want to, excuse me, 4. Brethren, let us be like this. Chapter 4, verse 15, but speaking of the truth in love, may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. For whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working of the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edification of itself in love. What that's talking about is where each of us is doing his part. Whatever part God has called you to play in this congregation, you're a healthy part of the body and you're doing it and you're building up the whole body. For the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. For His glory and honor. That each and every one of us, man, woman, boy, girl, is maturing spiritually and becoming like Jesus Christ more and more with each passing day. That's our goal. That's what we want to do. Yep. You do it by taking in the spiritual food, which is Jesus Christ Himself. He's the vine. We are the branches. You feed on Jesus Christ and His Word. And then you exercise. You take that Word and you apply it to your life. You make the changes that are needed. You study it. You meditate on it. And you apply it. So that when that great day comes, when that judge shows up, you're not surprised. You're not unprepared. And in one sense, none of us will be prepared. All of us on that day will be scared. We'll have the fear of God in us like we've never had it before. But if you do your part now, you'll have a very pleasant surprise on that day because that same face from whom heaven and earth will flee away from, for whom countless men and women will be standing in front of stark naked in an absolute abject terror that same face will turn to you and smile and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in to your rest. May God help us to be prepared for that great day. Amen.